bro. Thanks, Pastor. It is good to be with you guys tonight. Love being here. Uh, good to be with Lauren and Jason. Thank you guys for having us here as well. It's great to have them here. Um, there's a whole lot of stuff we do at Wall Builders. We do a lot of national polling. We just had a huge mega poll finished just a couple weeks ago with the shelf life of three years to, to determine what do Americans believe, what are our beliefs, what do generations believe, et cetera. We do a lot with history. Uh, we have 160,000 documents from American history, starting way back with Columbus. We've got the Bible that landed on the moon with Apollo 14. We've got all the stuff in between. So we do a lot of history standards and government standards for, for states all over the United States. We do a lot with legislators. We have a state network of 1,000 state legislators from all 50 states. Last year, we monitored 159,000 bills at the state legislative level, followed those through. So we're involved in all sorts of things. I've been involved in 13 cases of the U.S. Supreme Court. Was involved in a case at the Supreme Court this year. We've already got a case at the Supreme Court next year. So I say that because I'm going to talk about a lot of stuff tonight, and they go in a lot of different directions, and hopefully maybe give us a, a feel for where we are and what we can do as individual Christians, because it's easy for us as individuals to feel lost in the 330 million. There's very few things that any of us as individuals can do to change Washington or to change the Supreme Court or change anything else, and we can't let that be our focus. We've got to look at what we can do, and so hopefully I can give you a few things like that tonight. I want to start real quickly with one kind it's going to end up being a shout out, but I want to take you back to the beginning of the nation. We're the longest ongoing constitutional republic in the history of the world by a long shot. Nobody's even close to us. And our founding document is not the Constitution, it's the Declaration. The Declaration, the Constitution actually dates itself to the Declaration, did not replace the Declaration. Declaration starts off pretty simply, and let me change my slides here real quick, just a minute. <clears throat> good. Let's see if we can get the slides changed over and then we'll run. If you will watch that and if it doesn't move, just kind of hit that on it. So with, whoops, back up just a minute. That's not the one it should be on. Let's go back to what we had here just for a second. There we go. We'll see if it comes up. So we're going to talk about the Declaration. Declaration starts with 161 words that give forth six principles of government. It's followed up with 27 grievances showing how those six principles of government have been violated. And then it gives a concluding clause to say, look, we pledge our lives, fortune, sacred honor to get this stuff done. So the six principles of government are really, really key. Most folks don't know them today, and it's really hard to judge whether something's doing what it's supposed to unless you know what it's supposed to do. And so let me take you back. The 46 words, there's three God-based principles. The, the first five principles are God-based. The sixth one is not, uh, but it's interesting. I want to take you through the first three because they're, they're really key on the way we think. And we should think about this for everybody from dog catchers through the rest of the United States. This should be the grid that we use in examining anyone. So when you look at those 45 words, it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit, oops, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. 
The first three things to point out real quickly in those 46 words, and these are the three things that we use as a grid work to measure other things. The first one is all men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator. Now, what's that tell us? It tells us there is a creator God. We believe that there is a creator God. That's what, now, the problem we've had at the Supreme Court for a number of years, and by the way, it changed this year. If you didn't know, on religious liberty cases, we usually win one Supreme Court case every four to five years. We won five Supreme Court cases this year on religious liberties. We got more religious liberty cases this year. You now have more capability to be able to do things in public than you've had in 60 years. Now, here's the problem is one of the cases that was won this year, one of the religious liberty cases, and there were five landmark cases in the last two weeks that dealt with everything from, from, from guns to, to the, uh, to the uh, EPA regulating states to what happened with uh, abortion, the Dobbs decision. And we had the Coach Kennedy case where he's the coach, football coach in Washington. They said, oh, you can't pray, and the court said, yes, he can pray. Here's what's going to happen. This fall, when football season starts, not only will Coach Kennedy pray, there's going to be about 10,000 other coaches to stand up and pray. Now, not yet. Don't cheer yet, because that means there's going to be about 10,000 lawsuits that come with that. All the local school boards are going to say, now, wait a minute, that was just for Washington State. That wasn't down here. That has nothing to do with Glenwood Springs. And you're going to have to fight every one of those fights right here in your local area. You're going to have to fight for coaches to be able to have that. Just because the court gave it to us, all they did was open the door. We've got to fight our way through it. The other guys are still on the other side of the door wanting to keep us out. So what we've had with the court this year is we have open doors that we've never had before, but if we don't have backbone and courage and walk through that, it won't make a bit of difference because we will not have exercised the rights that we have. So going back to this, the acknowledgement there is a divine creator, what the court has said prior to the last two or three years, they said, you know, there's a lot of people in America who don't believe in God. We've got a lot of atheists here, and so we can't take a position either for or against God. That's not the founding documents. Founding documents said this is the unanimous declaration in 13 United States of America. Even back then, there were a lot of people that did not believe in God. There were atheists. We had Muslims here in 1619. We're building Buddhist temples by 1800. We had all sorts of non-Christians. Didn't matter. From a government standpoint, we say that there is a God. Now, why is that important? Because that is the first step to having a limited government. The founding fathers wanted a limited government. That's why the Constitution, excuse me, that's why the Constitution says the federal government's only allowed to do 17 things. Those are called enumerated powers. Everything else belongs to the states and local areas. So you have this limited government, and the first step in limiting government is knowing that there is a power higher than government. Because if government thinks it is God, then it is the, this is the problem with having a right to health care. If government gave it to you, government can take it away from you. Now, if it didn't come from government, government can't touch it. So knowing, first off, that there is a divine creator who gives a certain set of rights that limits government because government recognizes it cannot control everything out there. And if you're in France, if you're in Spain or Morocco or Italy or whatever, the government thinks it controls everything. If you try to homeschool in Germany, you will go to jail. If you try to share your faith in France, you will go to jail. It's called proselytization. See, the government thinks it's God over there, and it tells you everything that's right and wrong, and it changes from administration to administration. In America, we say, we don't care whether you believe in God or not. There is a God, and, and that's the starting place. We start with that, and so that's that's the first step in limiting government. The second clause is, in addition to all men are created equal, it says that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Now, this is the second point the founding fathers made, is that not only is there a God, but there are God-given rights. 
There's a certain set of rights that came from God, not from government. This is actually the second step to having limited government, and it deals with jurisdictions. If I can explain it this way, I'm a cowboy from Texas. We've got a ranch out in West Texas, and I have a red pickup, and I like my red pickup. I've had, it, I've had a number of red pickups. Everybody should have a red pickup. And my son had the audacity to drive onto the ranch with a black pickup. Not acceptable. So I promptly spray-painted his black pickup red because he needs a red pickup. Actually, I didn't, and why couldn't I? Because that pickup doesn't belong to me. Anything that belongs to me, I can spray paint red. I can spray paint my cattle red. I can spray paint my barns red, my roads red, my pastures red. I can't spray paint other stuff's red. That's what the founder said. This government, there's a certain set of rights you can't spray paint red. They didn't come from you. They don't belong to you, and you've got no jurisdiction over them. That's why it's important to know that there are God-given rights. So that's the second thing the Declaration tells us. They're endowed by their creator certain noble rights. Then it says that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. This is the first definition of government we have. The first and primary purpose of government is not to make sure that borders are secure, or that everybody's got a job, or that things are going well. The first and primary purpose of government is to make sure you have the right to practice your God-given rights. Governments are instituted among men to secure those rights. That's why the Founding Fathers gave us that government. Now, once we get those rights secured, then we can talk about other things, but not until we get those rights secured. So these are the first three things that they told us that government exists to protect enable rights. So when you look at these, these first three aspects, there's a divine creator. The divine creator gives a certain set of rights, and government exists to protect those rights. Notice that those are all God-centered aspects, which from the very start, you need to know that a secular government will never be a limited government. It can never be. A secular government will get into every conceivable aspect of your life and living, tell you what you can and can't do with, with fossil fuels or what you can and can't do with your car. Or any, This is what happens when you get secular thinking people. They no longer have a recognition of jurisdictions. They are the jurisdiction. They choose everything. This is why, again, a secular government will never be a limited government. Um, Jerry Nadler, who is uh, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee in the House, it was recently brought up just a few weeks ago about protecting God-given rights. And this concept of protecting God-given rights was the Declaration talks about, et cetera. And he made the comment, he said, God's will is of no concern to this Congress. That's a problem. Because if my rights are not a concern to you, then that means you, you're not my servant, you're not a public servant, I'm your servant. I exist for you, and my rights belong to you, and that's a real problem. So this is the first thing you want to look for in every level of government. It doesn't matter whether it's a dog catcher. It doesn't matter whether it's the president of the United States. If there is a secular mindset, you will not have a limited government. They will be involved in everything you do. And this is what we're finding about school boards in the last two years. You've been teaching what to my kids? Uh, what, what kind of closet? Did you, uh, gender transition? What, what's, what's that? I mean, we're finding all sorts of stuff we had no clue were going on because we, again, they think that these are the kids belong to them and, instead of to us. So go Going back to this, Sam Adams, talking about this third area, Sam Adams, father of the American Revolution, said, government was originally designed for the preservation of the inalienable rights. And by the way, the founding fathers said government was designed first in Genesis 9. The first record you have of civil government in either secular or religious writings is the Noahide laws, the seven laws that God gave Noah in Genesis 9. They said inalienable rights came before that. Inalienable rights came in Genesis 1 through 8. They identified 22, 23 different inalienable rights that God had given to everybody. It didn't come from government because government didn't even exist yet. So that's what he said. Government was originally designed for the preservation of inalienable rights. The first inalienable right 
God said in Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by him will man's blood be shed. In other words, whoever murders somebody, you take them out. What's that? That's a law guaranteed to protect the inalienable right to life. If someone takes someone else's life wrongly, innocent life, then government's to take care of that. Same, that's the second Noahide law was you can't take private property because that's an inalienable right. Your property is yours. If somebody steals it, government steps in to say, hey, you shouldn't have messed with their inalienable right. So that's what the founding fathers said. God gave us 22, 23 different inalienable rights. Government was instituted in Genesis 9 to protect those inalienable rights. And Sam Adams said, first, there's a right to life. Second, to liberty. Thirdly, to property. Now, it's interesting that those are the three he would choose because what happened was that's what the Declaration said. The Declaration said, among other rights, you have these three. Then they went on and said, you know, 11 years later, we told you back in the Declaration there were three among others. Well, here's a bunch of the others. And so the Bill of Rights, you get the First Amendment, and the First Amendment gives you five, five guaranteed rights in the First Amendment. The Second Amendment gives you two guaranteed rights. The Third Amendment gives you one. The Fourth through the Eighth Amendment give you about 11 guaranteed rights. These are all inalienable rights. But notice that they said first is a right to life. Now, we've just come through the Dobbs decision, and it would have been really helpful if when they were talking about right to life, it would have meant the abortion issue. That would have been really good because we could have gone to court and argued original intent, said, hey, founding fathers, they understood abortion in their day, and they knew it was wrong. And so when it says right to life in the documents, it's, it's talking about abortion as well. But obviously that wasn't what they were talking about because we know that they didn't have the technology or anything else back then. That's the argument. It's interesting going back into these old works and books. There's a book we have from 1808 about abortion in America back in 1808. It's interesting. They knew what abortion was. Thomas Jefferson, when he became governor of Virginia in 1779, banned all abortions in the state of Virginia. You'll find that so many of the founding fathers banned abortions once they became an American nation out from under British control. And so when it talks about abortion, it literally means abortion. Uh, now, Sam Adams talking about first is a right to life, but this... James Wilson, who is a, a signer of the Constitution and the Declaration, he's one of only six guys who signed both documents. He's an original justice on the Supreme Court. He's the second most active member of the Constitutional Convention. He started the original legal training in America. He did the first law school in America, 1791. While he's on the court, he's teaching law school. We have his books, and in those books, he's talking to students, and he tells the students, he says, with consistency, beautiful and undeviating, human life from its commencement to its close is protected by the common law. That's the Seventh Amendment of the Constitution. He continues, he said, in the contemplations of law, life begins when the infant is first able to stir in the womb, and by the law that life is protected. Now, here's where you make a distinction between technology and an issue. Their issue is as soon as you know there's life in the womb, that life is protected. But how did you know for sure back then? You had to have life in the womb. There wasn't any kind, you couldn't pee on a stick, you couldn't go get an ultrasound, you couldn't do anything else. You had to know, how long did it take you to know for sure that there was life in the womb? Generally the first trimester, about the first three months. But the point is, as soon as you know there's life in the womb, at that point the life is protected. This is where technology kicks in. We now know within eight days of fertilization there's life in the womb, great. As soon as you know, the law kicks in, the common law, Seventh Amendment of the Constitution kicks in to protect that unborn life. So this is an issue that they wrote about and talked about a lot. And when you look about the life issue, John Witherspoon said, this is what makes America different from Europe. John Witherspoon signed the Declaration. He's the president of Princeton. He trained one-third of the founding fathers. This minister of the gospel trained one-third of our political leaders. And he pointed out, he said, you know, a big difference between America and Europe is in Europe, they think that parents give life to children. 
They think that when a child is born, life is given by the parents. And therefore, in Europe, they let parents do abortions because it's the parent's child. He said, in America, we know that life comes from God. And we don't let parents take the life that God has given. And that's not the role of parents. He said, this is a big difference. And this is a lecture he taught. I think it's lecture number 13 in a series of lectures he did at Princeton. He said, this is a big difference between Europe and America. We don't allow abortions in America because we know that life comes from God. It doesn't come from parents. And so as he pointed out, he said, a perfect right in the state of natural liberty is the right to life. He says, here in America, we deny the power of life and death of parents. So again, this is a big deal. People say, oh, they didn't understand our technology. No, they didn't, but they understood principles better than anyone we've ever had in the face of the earth, and they laid principles down. There's nothing in the Constitution that talks about a single piece of technology, but the principles they gave us are still working 234 years later, and they'll continue to work. It's like the principles of gravity, the principle of motion, any other laws of science. You get the principles down, you can add the technology to it. So you go back. When Sam Adams says first is a right to life, that's really significant. Now, to me, as a political leader, I've held been elected five times in Texas in political offices. When, when someone wants to talk to me about political office, the first thing I want to know is where you are first on life. That's, that's the number one issue I want to know about. First is a right to life. And the, the reason is, is what I have discovered over years of being in politics and office is if I can figure out where you are on the life issue, with a 90% degree of certainty, I will tell you how you're going to vote on every other issue you face. If you, I, you know, I don't know if somebody's running for U.S. Senate in Montana or not. Let's say there's someone running for U.S. Senate, and let's say they, they want an endorsement. I say, all right, what's your position on life? I, I don't, life's not a big issue here in Montana. Well, here, here's the deal. If I know what your position is on life with a 90% degree of certainty, I will tell you how you'll vote on the Small Arms Treaty. I'll tell you how to vote on the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. I'll tell you what you're going to do with climate change. I'll tell you what you do with capital gains tax. If you tell me where you are in life with a 90% degree of certainty, I will tell you how you'll vote on every other issue. Because if you're wrong on the life issue, you're going to be wrong on my right to acknowledge God according to the dictates of conscience. You can't pray in public. What were you thinking about? And my First Amendment guaranteed rights that I have for the First Amendment, you'll find those that are pro-abortion are against public religious expressions. They don't think a coach should be praying in public. They don't think the Boston City Hall should be flying the Christian flag that they now flew because we won that case at the U.S. Supreme Court 9-0. to zero. They, they don't think, see, if you're wrong on the life issue, you're going to be wrong on religious liberties. If you're wrong on life, you're going to be wrong on the Second Amendment. You don't think people have the right to keep and bear arms. We need to take all guns from the people, and just law enforcement people need to have them, or just military. You're wrong on life issue, you'll be wrong on my inalienable right to defend myself, my right to keep and bear arms. If you're wrong in the life issue, you'll also be wrong in the Fifth Amendment private property issue. And that's why we had a decision from the U.S. Supreme Court 14 years ago where they said, you know, the Constitution says the government can't take private property except for public use. But we think we're going to change that to public purpose, which means, you know what, if we take your ranch, you're paying taxes on that, but we can put a strip mall up there that's going to have 25 different shops in it. We'll get so much more money. And so now the government is allowed to take private property from people if they can generate more income than you would have generated. No, no, no. That's not the way this works. It is if you're a pro-abortion. If you don't see life as an inalienable right, you're not going to see private property as an inalienable right. Uh, the same thing when you get to things like marriage. You won't have the right definition of gender. You won't have the right definition of morality, of sexuality. The same when you get to any other issue. Now, all of these are called social issues, and there's a lot of people today that don't care about social issues. All they care about is economic issues. If all you care about is economic issues, 
there are some groups you really ought to be aware of. And by the way, if you're not aware, uh, any given session of Congress, there's between 10 and, and 13,000 bills introduced in session of Congress. Lauren will vote on 1,000 pieces of legislation in one session. I bet you guys can't name 25 of what she's voted on. So they're going to do a lot of voting you don't know a single thing about. And there's going to be 10 to 13,000 bills introduced. Not all of them are going to go somewhere. There's a lot of procedural votes, but there's a lot of votes. But having said that, economic issues, if I wanted to know where Lauren was, for example, on life issues, then I would go, and by the way, there are a lot of economic issues, but if I go on life issues, National Right to Life is a group that keeps a scorecard. They will monitor those, those thousand votes over the year. They will look at every uh, abortion-related vote in there, and they will create a scorecard of all the best members of the U.S. Congress. And so if you look at the best members of the U.S. Congress, this is a list they came out with this year. Oh, Lauren's right up there at top. She's number one on the list. Now... It starts at the 100 percenters and goes all the way down to zero percenters, okay? And, and by the way, here are the zero percenters. Um, but if you're interested in economic stuff, you say, I don't care about life or anything else, then what you want to do is don't look at National Right to Life. Look at Americans for Prosperity because Americans for Prosperity don't care a whit about life or marriage or morality, but they will watch all the economic votes, and they will make sure that you're not spending crazy. And if you look at the Americans for Prosperity, it's an interesting thing. It's a one-to-one -one correlation. You'll find that if you're 100% on life, you're 100% on economics as well. Again, life is the big key issue to this. And if you look at and see here side by side, there's life and there's economics. And it's interesting, the 100 percenters on one or the 100 percenters on the other. You find the same th thing when you want to see the worst ones. If you want to see the worst uh, life reps, there's your percentage. But if you want to see the economic reps, it's a one-to-one -one correlation, same kind of thing, top to bottom. If you're good on the life issue, you're good on everything else. You guys have done a really good job of sending a really good congresswoman to Washington, D.C., who's right on all those issues. So, and I'll tell you, you know, again, people ask if I'll endorse a dog catcher. Barton, will you endorse me for dog catcher? I say, well, before you endorse you for dog catcher, I want to know where you're on the abortion issue. I said dog catcher. We don't do anything with abortion. Yeah, you're exactly right, but the problem is, you might not stay dog catcher. You might decide to run for school board, and then you might run for school board president. Then you might run for city council and mayor. You might run for state rep. You might run for state senator. You might run for governor. It's a whole lot easier to knock you off as a dog catcher than it is to knock you off as a governor. <laughs> and so that's why you want to get a grid work for how you look at political officials, whatever level they are. That's your local school board. I want to know where you are at abortion. We don't deal with abortion school. Great, but it tells me your worldview. Once I know your worldview, then I know what we're dealing with. So I want to do that as a shout out to Laura because I really appreciate her, appreciate what she did. You guys have done a great job in sending people there. I want to take as Christians and look at where we are right now. Uh, some recent polling, the American Bible Society comes out every year with their annual State of the Bible report. The State of the Bible came out this year in the American Bible Society. goes back to 1816. They were founded by founding fathers who signed the Constitution of the United States. If you've been told the founding fathers are a bunch of atheists, agnostics, deists, easy to prove that's not the case. There's 250 founding fathers. You can probably name two or three that are atheists, agnostics, deists. You probably can't name the other 97% that are strong Christians. So the American Bible Society started by evangelical founding fathers who wanted everyone to have a Bible, and they come out with a Bible report every year. And this year, the bad news is, and if you look at the chart, you look at the, the blue dots over on the right, see how they fall? Look at the yellow line on the right, see how it plummets? 
We lost 26 million Americans last year who no longer read the Bible at all. So we have a plummeting number going and the number of people who read the Bible. Now, that's, a, that's bad news for a number of reasons. You remember that Jesus tells us in Matthew 4, 4, man doesn't live by bread alone. He lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You have to have spiritual food. As Americans, we're really good about getting our three squares a day. We will not miss a piece of physical food at all. We're not very good about getting spiritual food on a regular basis. And as a matter of fact, if Americans were to make a pledge that I'm not going to eat anything physical till I've eaten something spiritual, most of them would be dead. I mean, we just don't feed the spirit at all. And if we tied our spiritual food to our physical food, so what I'm going to encourage you right up top, your church folks, Mark's great, you're great. You need to read the Bible a whole lot more than you do, no matter how much you read it. You need to read it more than you do, and I'm going to show you some stats on that that go with it. Uh, in addition to that, you remember Jesus said, he, he told us in addition to praying, he said we should pray for daily bread. Well, that's spiritual food. Pray for, it's like pray for some God's word. Every, learn to read the Bible every single day. That's my first challenge to you is read the Bible daily. If that's not a practice of yours, make it a practice because you eat three meals a day physically. You ought to eat at least one meal a day spiritually. Second thing is take it to the next level. Start memorizing Bible verses. Oh, that's hard. Yeah, it is. You're right, it is. Start trying to memorize at least one Bible verse a week, and I'll show you why. Let me take you back into history for just a little bit. If I can take you back to 1787, this is the Constitutional Convention. This is the, the, the 55 guys that, that wrote the Constitution we have. It's interesting, the guy that was ha the happiest in America about having this Constitutional Convention was Ben Franklin. And 17, um, back in 1754, he's the first guy in America to come up with the idea of having a constitution, a written constitutional convention. He said, we should all be one United States of America. Back then, we were 13 different nations. We weren't 13 states. We were nations. We didn't even like each other. Virginia and Maryland had wars with each other over borders. North Carolina and South Carolina had wars with each other. If you went from North Carolina to South Carolina, you had to stop the border and exchange money, just like you're going into a foreign nation. Those 13 nations didn't like each other, and Franklin back in 1754 says, guys, come on, we can be a United States. Didn't happen, but he keeps pressing for it. 22 years later, he signs the Declaration of Independence, which is making us closer to be a nation. Seven years later, he's one of three guys who signs the peace treaty to end the American Revolution. Now we're really close to being a nation. And four years later, he is sitting at the Constitutional Convention helping create the United States of America. This is what he's dreamed about for way those 33 years, this has been his dream, and he's sitting there, and it's not going the way he went. And, and by the way, you see Ben Franklin there in the center. He's circled. He's 81 years old at this point in time. Just per, by perspective, the average American lifespan, the average lifespan for an American back then, at that time in 1787, was 33 years old. So he's sitting there at 81. By the way, if you're a high school senior and you're here tonight and you'd been alive back then, you would have already had your midlife crisis because when you hit 17, you're half done. I mean, you're sliding after 17. So here's Franklin at 81, and he's really distraught because when they came together to create the Constitution, everybody came with their own agenda. You had the Virginia plan. You had the New Jersey plan. You had the Connecticut plan, the New York plan. New York didn't want New Jersey's plan. Jersey didn't want Virginia's plan. Virginia didn't want Connecticut's plan. And so six weeks into the convention, it literally is falling apart. 
Alexander Hamilton said, I'm tired of fighting with you guys. I'm going back to New York. I got better things to do. George Mason said, I'm on my way back to Virginia. I'm tired of all the bickering. And it literally is falling apart. And that's when Franklin gave the longest speech he gave. It was Thursday, June the 28th, 1787. Significantly, every speech Franklin gave at the Constitutional Convention, he wrote it out and had someone read it for him. This one, he didn't. He was so passionate. He did this one off the cuff. He just said, guys, have you lost your brains? And he just, he just pours his heart out. This is what he said in that speech. Franklin speaking, old man Franklin says, in this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we've not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understanding? He said, in the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. And they did. This is where they prayed. This is where they signed the Declaration of Independence. We had one Congress back then. It was not bicameral. We didn't have a House and a Senate. One Congress. But they had three chaplains, and they prayed a lot. By 1814, there had been, by 1815, there had been 1,400 government-issued calls to prayer in America. He said, guys, in this room, he said, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. He said, our prayers, sir, were heard. And they were graciously answered. He said, all of us engaged in this struggle must have observed frequent instances of superintending providence in our favor. And have we now forgotten this powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? He says, I have lived, sir, a long time. Yes, he had, 81 years. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. He said, if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? He said, we've been assured in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. He said, I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we should succeed in these political buildings, no better than the builders of Babel, and we should become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. He said, I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and his blessing in our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. Now, there's certainly a spiritual tone to what he just said. Let's go a little deeper. And by the way, hands down, he is one of the least religious founding fathers. He's one of the three least religious. But notice, least religious does not mean anti-religious or non-religious. Somebody in this room tonight is the least religious person here. That doesn't mean you're anti-religious. Maybe you're 99.6% versus everybody else is 99.7. So he's the least religious guy. You just saw what he did. Here's the question I've got for you. That speech that you just saw from Franklin was 14 sentences long. How many Bible verses did you see him quote in those 14 sentences? Think about it. Go back over it. You should come up with 14 Bible verses. These are the Bible verses Ben Franklin just quoted. Now, I will point out to you, this was a passionate, extemporary speech that he's just given off the top of his head. This was not written down. He's just given this speech. He quotes 14 Bible verses. You know, interestingly, how did he do that? How did he pull that off? Jesus tells us. Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, 34, he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you've got it on the inside, it will come to the outside. How did all those Bible verses get out? Because he had them in here. How did he do that? Because he memorized Bible verses. But he's the least religious founding father. I would stack Franklin up against any Bible scholar I know today, and he would probably whoop them 
for all the Bible verses memorized. And by the way, he has, a, he has a great quote on this about Bible knowledge. He was talking to the Reverend Dr. Samuel Cooper, who's one of the prominent ministers up in New England. They were good friends. They wrote each other back and forth. And Franklin had been appointed as America's ambassador or diplomat to France and England elsewhere. And Franklin was just telling him, he said, you know, he said, when I give speeches, it's really, they're, they're really different depending on where I give it. He says, if I give a speech here in, in America, in New England, everybody knows the Bible. He's, this is what he said. He says, it's not necessary in New England, where everybody reads the Bible and is acquainted with Scripture phrases, that I should take note of the Bible references from which I take them. In other words, when I speak to all the guys here at the convention, I don't have to tell them I'm, I'm quoting the Bible, because they all know the Bible. They all recognize the Bible. He said, but when I'm on diplomatic assignment overseas, he says, I've observed that in England, as well as in France, that verses and expressions taken from the sacred writings and not known to be such appear very strange and awkward to people. He said, when I'm speaking in, in England and France, I have to tell them I'm quoting the Bible. They don't know I'm quoting the Bible. America has become England and France. See, we, we can quote the Bible. We can use that stuff from Franklin, and most people have cannot identify. I've never had anyone identify more than five Bible verses out of what Franklin just gave, and that's, that's even at pastor's conferences. So Franklin's got 14. Let me take you to a couple more. Let me take you to Patrick Henry. You remember Patrick Henry's famous speech, Give Me Liberty, Give Me Death. March 23rd, 1775, uh, he, was in, he was a young man. He was an elected legislator, a bunch, of, a bunch of senior legislators there. He's the young guy. And they're all saying, oh, man, we don't think what Great Britain's doing is right. But there's nothing we can do about it. We don't have an army. We don't have a navy. They've been our military. There's nothing we can do about it. And they're just whining and complaining about how weak they are. And he just has it up to here. And this is when he gave his speech. It was at St. John's Church. That's where the legislature met. It was at St. John's Church in Richmond. And this is what he told them. He said, sir, we're not weak if we make a proper use of those means with the God of nature's placed in our power. The millions of people armed in the holy cause of liberty, and in such a country as that which we possess are invincible by any force which our enemy can send against us. He said, besides, sir, we should not fight our battles alone. There is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations and who will raise up friends to fight our battles for us. The battle, sir, is not to the strong alone. It's to the vigilant, the active, the brave. He said, the war's actually begun. The next scale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it the gentlemen wish? What would they have? Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of change and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Same question. The speech that he just gave, that is 14 sentences. How many Bible verses did he quote? And you should have identified 11 Bible verses. These are the 11 Bible verses that, that Patrick Henry just quoted. I'll give you one more example. George Washington was elected president in 1789. After he's inaugurated and sworn in, he says, you know, we've been 13 nations. We really need to get people thinking like one nation. So I need to make a trip into every single state and help them understand they're part of the United States. So he plans this, this, this trip. And so after inauguration, he says, okay, here's the schedule of states. Here's where I'm going. And one of the states he's going into is Rhode Island. He's going to all of them. But Rhode Island is going in 1790. And as he announces that he's going into Rhode Island in 1790, there's a Hebrew congregation in Newport, Rhode Island, a Jewish congregation. They write in this letter, and they said, oh, we thank God for you. 
you have done so much to secure our religious liberties, and we think God has raised you. And he just, they just gush all over Washington. It's a really nice letter. And so Washington replies back, and it's a, it's a kind of cordial letter, and it's you know, kind of, well, thank you for that. I don't know what to say, but thank you. And so this is what he told tell them back. So he writes back to this Hebrew congregation in Newport, and he tells them, he says, May the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. Now, hopefully, you all recognize sit in safety under your own vine and fig tree is in the Old Testament multiple times. That was George Washington's famous favorite verse. There's 33 separate letters where he quotes that verse, and it meant that God has given us the ability to have our own private property, to sit and enjoy our own peace, our own country. We have our own place. The British aren't telling us what to do anymore. So that he just loved that. He thought that was the, the biblical fulfillment of that verse but he continued he says may the father of all mercies scatter light and not darkness in our paths and make us all in our several vocations useful here and in his own due time and way everlastingly happy now what he had there was two sentences here's the same question how many verses were used he had 10 bible verses in those two sentences his entire letter was nearly one bible phrase strung after another where did he get that Again, this is what happens with Bible memorization. This was so much a part of what they did. It is so funny. Secular professors all the time say, oh, the founding fathers weren't religious. No, no, what you've just told me is you are biblically illiterate because you don't recognize the Bible verse and because they didn't feel like they had to tell you what Bible verse it was, you don't think they quoted the Bible because you don't know it. If you knew the Bible, you would recognize the Bible and you'd find that they're not biblically illiterate. So what you have here, they all three did this, and this is, this is why I challenge you, take and do Bible memorization because it'll just start come flowing out of your conversation, it'll flow out of your mouth. What's on the inside will come out the outside, whether that's hate or anger or jealousy or anything else. What's on the inside is going to come out. Now, read the Bible daily and memorize the Bible verse every week. Let me also take you to... What, where we are in America in a very real way. I mentioned we were blessed more than any other nation. We have 234 years on the same piece of paper. No one's ever come close to that. Uh, we are the most creative nation in the world. Our 4% of the world's population has created more than 96% of the inventions in the world. 4% should produce 4%. And our 4% of the world's population produces 23, 24, 25% of the world's gross domestic product. So we are the most prosperous nation in the world, according to the last census that we had in 2020, released in 2021. If you live in poverty in America, your lifestyle is higher than the middle class in Europe. So the lowest in America is higher than middle class in Europe, which is the second wealthiest place on the face of the earth. We're complaining all the time about who we are as Americans, but it's only because we don't understand where everybody else is. We would be really appreciative. We're not very thankful as a people generally in America. We demand more and want more, and we gripe and complain. We just don't understand how blessed we are. So when you look at that, with all the, the old books that we, we own, we own a lot of textbooks. The first textbook published in America was 1690 in Boston. Um, have that textbook, the next three centuries of textbooks. And it's interesting that in those old textbooks, we said, now kids, the reason America is so different from every other nation is because of the Bible. How can we prove that today? Let me just give you one proof. There's a lot of ways I can prove that. But just the way we talk to one another, what we call idioms, idioms are phrases that we use to one another. We have 257 idioms that we use on a daily basis with each other where we're quoting 
direct specific Bible verses. Most Americans have no clue of that. Uh, if you're my generation, if you got white hair and you're old like me, these are the ones that we used to quote all the time by the skin of your teeth. I'll give you my two cents worth. Leopard can't change the spots. All of these are Bible verses. Now these have permeated the way we talk to one another in our language, and this is a common part of our language. If you happen to be from the younger generations, Gen Y, Gen Z, these are the ones more that the younger generations use, house divided and fight the good fight and live by the sword, no rest with the wicked. They're all Bible verses. There's 257 of these. If you want to have a lot of fun, next time you're in town, some, I don't know, you go into big city and you're at McDonald's or you go to Home Depot or you go to Walmart or whatever, you're going to hear somebody quote Bible verses like this. And they're not going to quote, no, they're quoting them. And so if you want to have a lot of fun, just stop them and say, hey, do you know what Bible verse you just quoted? And they're going to look at you with a really strange look and say, no, what verse was that? And you won't have a clue either. And we, we don't know. So, see, every one of these phrases has a Bible verse that goes with it. You can look up these phrases in the Bible. You can look up these passages and see every one of these phrases there. So where we are today, I think, is well described by President John Quincy Adams, who said this. He said, with regard, John Quincy Adams said, with regard to the history contained in the Bible, it's not so much praiseworthy to be acquainted with it as it is shameful to be ignorant of it. See, today, we've had a cultural default in America. Today, if you knew those Bible verses, we would praise you. I can't believe you're such a Bible scholar that you knew all those phrases. Back in their day, they would have said, whoa, you didn't know that came from the Bible? Shame on you. I mean, this is where we've had the cultural default. It was shameful not to know the Bible back then. Look at Franklin and all the verses he quoted. And today it's praiseworthy if we do know the Bible. And by the way, for the next few minutes, I'm going to just show you presence of the United States. Now, you know, you expect Pastor Mark to say good things about the Bible. You expect me to say good things about the Bible. What you don't expect is that for 150 years in American history, it was the presidents of the United States who carried the water on the Bible and told the nation about how important the Bible was. I mean, there's, we're so far from that now. Uh, CNN has been running this piece for the last couple of weeks about how that if you're an evangelical Christian, you're a white supremacist nationalist, you're, you, and, I mean, they go, you, you read that CNN article, you'll be so offended at what you believe that you didn't know that you believed. You didn't know that you were such a hater, such a racist. That you, uh, One of the ones we covered last night is this is, this is why white people uh, want abortion ended so they can continue to rape people because whites rape people. Whoa. See, this is what, and, and by the way, I said white people, white Christian people. They say white Christian people. So this is the way CNN is portraying white Christian people. And so what happens is, again, going back to this, is the president of the United States has stood up and defended the Bible and Christianity. We haven't had that in a good while. It's been over 20 years since we've had someone openly, aggressively defend the Bible as the rock of the nation, not just of faith, but as the rock of the nation. Let me show you a couple other quotes. Uh, President Teddy Roosevelt said this. Teddy Roosevelt said, The teachings of the Bible are so interwoven and so entwined with our civic and our social life that it would be impossible for us to figure what life would be if these teachings were removed. Now, may I, notice, may I point out to you, he did not say our spiritual life. He said our civic and our social life. Time out. What are you talking about? Go back to that prosperity for just a minute, that prosperity we enjoy in America that no one's even close to in the world. 
Where'd that come from? Free market system. Well, if you've been to university and economic courses, you had an economics course, your economics pro professor likely told you that, look, the free market system, we go back to Adam Smith, 1776, he did the book Wealth of Nations. He's the father of modern economics. This is where we get the free market system. Time out. That's not where you go back to. What you go back to was the fact that the pilgrims came to America as socialists. They wrote that very openly. They came out of Europe where the king provided them anything they needed, and they had to share everything. And when they got here, they were one congregation. They were planning to come in two ships. One of the ships didn't make it, so they put part of the congregation all they could in the other ship, and the Mayflower came with three-fourths, two-thirds, three-fourths of the congregation. They're a congregation. They love each other. They want to share with each other, and they had a great socialistic system going until they were reading the Bible. And their governor, William Bradford, said, you know, the Bible was a pretty new book back then. It had been put up for thousands of years. Only elites could read it. And so we finally get the Bible in the English language in 1560, and now we're starting to read it ourselves. And he, he said that they would spend anywhere from four to six hours a day in the Bible because it's a brand-new book, and they're really serious about conforming to it. He said they came on this verse, 1 Timothy 5, 8, where it says, if you don't provide for your own household, you're worse than an infidel. You've denied the faith. Is a time out. We've been providing for everybody else's household. We're a congregation. We share everything together. If you don't provide for your own household, you're worse than an infidel. You've denied the faith for our own household. That's what the Bible says. So they called the people together, and they already owned their property. And contrary to what professors say, they did not steal the land from the Indians. The longest-lasting treaty in American history was between the Pilgrims and the Wampanoag Indians because, as they pointed out, they did not own a single square foot of land to which they did not have a title deed. So they bought all that land while they had great relations with their Indian neighbors. And so they got together and they did what it said in Psalms that it says God has put the solitary into families. So widows and, and orphans, they put into families, asylum families, said, okay, guys, this is your property. You got to make it work. And if you don't make it work, you're going to be pretty hungry this winter. And so suddenly everybody had an incentive to work. He reports that in the first year of that free market system, their productivity went up sevenfold went up seven, and now they're already good people, good-hearted Christian people, and it went up sevenfold because they went to a different system of economics. You'll find Jamestown also had a socialist system, and Jamestown went into what was called the starving time. They were so lazy, they refused to work, and their governor, John Smith, said, Second Timothy, Second Thessalonians 3.10 says, if you don't work, you don't eat. They said, well, we're not working. He actually had to whip them to get them to work. They went from 450 people down to 90 people in the starving time. They refused to work, and they actually turned to cannibalism as a result. As people were dying that winter, they had the bright idea. They said, you know, there's probably some flesh left on those bodies down at the graveyard. Let's go dig it up. One man, pregnant wife, he killed her. He ate the child, ate the wife. I mean, it was terrible in Jamestown, and it wasn't until he whipped them and made them do Second Thessalonians 3.10 they got it. And those two verses plus... Um, plus Matthew 20, Luke 19, and Matthew 25. Those are the five Bible verses that built the free market system in America. Most folks today have no clue that that's a religious system. Go back to what Teddy said. He said, if you were to take the Bible teachings out of our civic and social life, you wouldn't even recognize this nation. And same thing if you go to our former government. The Bible shows seven different forms of government. We specifically chose the one that was recommended in Exodus 18.21, Deuteronomy 1, 16-18, and Deuteronomy 18.16. Founding Fathers quoted those Bible verses, which is why we have a Republican form of government. Exodus 18.21 says, Choose out from among you leaders of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. Choose your local, your county, your state, your federal electors, 
and choose able men such as fear God, men of truth hating covenants. That's a Republican form of government, Exodus 1821. That's what our founding fathers quoted. So there's so much of what we have in this unique system today that came out of the Bible, but because we don't know it today, we just think it's been secular. If we can just keep it secular, it's going to be great forever. Like Jerry Nadler said in Congress, God's will is of no concern to this Congress. Well, that means your economic system is of no concern to this Congress, your form of government, your judicial system, your judiciary, your banking system. It's all of concern. If you know what God's Word says, it's very, very practical. So we're going to take a break here for about 10 minutes. We'll come back, pick up on the other side of the break, and we'll finish up, give you a perspective of what's going on and maybe some things you can do to help. See you guys in 10 minutes.
right time. All right. Up and guys, let's go. Okay, guys, we'll crank again. Also, if we put the slides back up, too, we'll get the slides started right back. Well, they are perfect. Thank you. Way ahead of me. Thank you. Okay, so we went through President John Quincy Adams, we went through President Teddy Roosevelt, and even if you take one of the least religious presidents in America, Andrew Jackson, even for Andrew Jackson, this is an absolute no-brainer. Andrew Jackson said, there it is. He said, the Bible is the rock on which our republic rests. And again, he's one of your least religious presidents. Uh, if you take someone like Zachary Taylor, Zachary Taylor was a war hero. He was known as Old Rough and Ready was his nickname. Look what Zachary Taylor said. Zachary Taylor said, the Bible is the best of books. I wish it were in the hands of everyone. It's indispensable to the safety and permanence of our institutions. And by the way, notice he didn't say faith. He said institutions. The more secular judiciaries become, the less well it works. The more secular economics have become, the less well it works. The more secular education has become, the less well it works. You take any area, the more secular it becomes, the less well it works. We start looking like the other nations. He says, let me reset back here on mine, maybe the Celt cause. There we go. So he says it's indispensable to safety and permanence for our institutions. He continues to say, especially should the Bible be placed in the hands of the young. It is the best school book in the world, and I would that all of our people were brought up under the influence of that holy book. Best school book in the world? Sounds like a lawsuit waiting to happen. Yeah, that's because we know so little about our own history today that we would sue over something like that that was just absolute mainstream for them. And again, this is not an activist. This is a president of the United States, and this is what everybody agreed with. Continue. Ulysses S. Grant was the president of the United States on the 100th anniversary of America. 1876, he's president. 1776 declaration. 100 years later, he came out with this card. See up top, it says top left, 1776. Top right, 1876. In the middle, it says centennial. It says message of President Grant. And to see what he says, message to the children and youth of the United States. What's the president have to say to American kids on 100th birthday? He says, hold fast to the Bible as a sheet anchor of your liberties. To the influence of this book, we're indebted for all the progress made in true civilization, and to this we must look as our guide in the future. That'll get you, again, a lawsuit going today if the president were to say something like that. But I can go through all the presidents right through and just show you that this is what they did. So... Benjamin Rush, one of my favorite founding fathers of the 250 or so folks that we call founding fathers, John Adams said he's one of the three most notable. According to John Adams, number one was George Washington, number two is Ben Franklin, number three was Benjamin Rush. Now, Benjamin Rush started the first abolition society in America, started the Sunday school movement in America, started the first Bible society in America. He started five universities. Uh, he trained the first black physicians. He trained the first women in academic education. Uh, he's also called the, the father of American medicine, the most famous 
medical doctor in American history. I mean, I just go through all the stuff that get, guys unbelievable. Signed the Declaration, ratified the Constitution, served in three different persons' administrations, director of finance. I, just unbelievable what the guy did. And Benjamin Rush is famous because, in, in, he's called the father of public schools under the Constitution because of a piece he did in 1790. In 1790, he did this piece called On the Mode of Education Proper in a Republic. Now, come back to this more later. We'll kind of blow it up in a little bit. But he said, you know, we used to be 13 separate nations. Now we're one nation. If we're going to stay one nation, what do we need to teach in our schools to be a unified nation? Because we can't be 13 nations. We've got to be one. What do we teach in common in our schools? And so he covered that. It's interesting. The next year, he came out with this piece, 1791. He gave a dozen reasons that America's public schools would never take the Bible out of public schools. This is what would keep us a nation. And so here's one of your top three founding fathers, top educator in America. 1790, he says, here's the purpose of public schools. 1791, he said, here's a dozen reasons we'll never take the Bible out of our public schools. And this is even a comment he made when he wrote that piece. He said, the great enemy of the salvation of man, in my opinion, never invented a more effectual means of extinguishing Christianity from the world than by persuading mankind that it was improper to read the Bible at schools. I think we bought into something. How many Christians today, oh, you shouldn't be reading the Bible at schools. Read that at church. Read that at home. Who told you it was improper to read the Bible at schools? Our culture. See, look at the guys who gave us our culture, and they said, if we're ever going to stay a nation, you'll never stop reading the Bible at schools. Here's a dozen reasons you'll never take it out. And by the way, there's nothing that will more destroy our faith than stopping to read the Bible at schools. Man, that sounds like a prophet back in the day. So what you'll find is the Founding Fathers wrote so much about this that we've actually had Supreme Court decisions and cases on this. One was a case that happened in 1844. It's called Vidal versus Girard's Executors. It was an 8-0 unanimous Supreme Court decision. In that case, there was a question of whether a government-run school in Pennsylvania was going to teach the Bible at schools. And the United States Supreme Court in an 8-0 decision said, whoa, 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 whoa. A government-run school? They said, if you're a government-run school, you will teach the Bible in schools. We will not fund a government-run school that won't teach the Bible. 8-0 decision. I don't think we've heard about that in our history books much at all. What we do know in our history books is what happened in 1962. 1962 started with Ingle Vital. Within 12 months, 63, we're at Abbott and Shemp and Murray Collette. This is the decision in which the U.S. Supreme Court said, mm, we're not going to do the Bible in schools anymore. We've done that for a long time, time to do something different. Now, when the court made that decision in 63, why did they make that decision? Because, by the way, the court pointed out in 63 that taking the Bible out of schools, they said, was without either historical or legal precedent. There's no press in our history for taking the Bible out of schools because, as you saw, there's an 8-0 Supreme Court decision. There's all this other stuff. And they said, but it's time to take it out. Why? If you want to know why the court did what it did, you read the decision. That's what we did this year with the Dobbs decision. That's what we did all the other decisions. You just read the decision. So if you go back and read the decision, you'll find the Supreme Court quotes from Dr. Solomon Grazel and says, hey, here's why we got to do it. The court says, if portions of the New Testament were read without explanation, they could be and had been psychologically harmful to the child. We've discovered the Bible causes brain damage, and we've got to save our kids from brain damage. May I suggest to you we've suffered massive brain damage since we've taken the Bible out of schools? 
We don't even know how many genders there are anymore. By the way, uh, Texas is one of the top two states in the nation for influencing public school textbooks. 23, 24% of the nation's public school students come from Texas and California. When publishers write textbooks, if they write it for Texas and California, it's going to take them 20, 30 million dollars to write a textbook. But in those two states, they can get their money back and not go in the hole. It's really hard to write a textbook for Colorado because they can't get enough publishers that want to do that to get their money back. And so they look at Texas and California. And so Texas and California, what happened was Texas, we have our standards change every 12, 14, 16 years, depends on what it is, every 12 years of history. But this last November, we had our standards on health. And so our health textbooks, this is what gets into sex ed and everything else with gender. And so all the LGBTQIA plus groups descended on, on Texas. And at the time, they were still known as LGBTQ groups. They were not LGBTQIA plus groups, but they made it very clear in the hearings that we are now LGBTQIA plus. Why plus? They said, well, we know of 93 different genders that exist right now, but we're not sure how many more there are, so we add the plus to cover everything we haven't thought of yet. Uh, there was training done last week, corporate training, where the corporate trainers went in and taught all the corporate executives. There are now 150 identified different genders in America, 150 different genders. We've lost our brains. Anybody that's ever been on a ranch knows how many genders there are. I mean, anybody that's got any critters of any kind knows how many genders there are. We've lost our brains. See, oh no, Bible causes brain damage. We've lost common sense, and that's what happened. And that's the reason the court took it out. That's the court's decision. And now we give them all this dignity and honor because, you know, that they are the court after all. Well, the court we've got now is actually reading the Constitution again, which is why we're starting to see a lot of this stuff roll back. That's an activist court that did not read the Constitution. One of the cases won this year, that 9-0 decision, Boston would not fly Christian flag. They flew 216 other flags at Boston, said not a Christian flag. And we won that case at the Supreme Court. Matt Staver argued that Liberty Council was a 9-0 decision. And the decision saying that they had to fly the Christian flag was written by Justice Stephen Breyer one of the most liberal justices in the court. And in that decision, a 9-0 decision, every liberal in the court said, fly the Christian flag. He said, these are no longer the freewheeling days of the 1960s. We feel like we're bound by a constitution. Hooray, now we get back to a constitution. That's really good. And even the liberals agreed that, Bo and so here last week, Boston flew the Christian flag outside City Hall in Boston, the one they refused to fly. See. This is the freewheeling days of the 60s. This is when judicial activism came in in a very real way. And this is where we get with abortion. This is where we get all the other stuff that happens. There's no constitutional basis for that. There's no legal basis. There's no 10th Amendment basis for that. But that's what they did. You had a bunch of, of super legislators. So going back to this, Benjamin Rush, Benjamin Rush said, he said, the Bible, when not read in schools, is seldom read in a subsequent period of life. We now know this to be statistically through, 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 through a lot of studies. Um, the earlier, the younger you are in life, when you start a habit, the more likely it is to remain with you throughout your life. So what we were doing back then, we had you reading the Bible in schools when you were four, five, and six, and it stays with you. Now, you can start reading the Bible when you're in your 20s, but if you're going to make it a lifelong habit, you have to work at it harder than you did at four, five, or six. You can start reading your 40s, 50s, or 60s, and you can make it a lifelong habit. You just have to work hard at it. We know the younger you are when you start training on something, the more likely it is to stay with you throughout your life.
And that's what we had. The Bible, when not read in schools, is seldom read in any subsequent period of life. And this is what polling now shows us in America. Even though we still profess to be a Christian nation, even though 72% of the nation professes to be Christians, we are the most biblically illiterate generation in our history. We know less about the Bible because we didn't read it when we were young. We didn't read it in schools. We seldom read it in a subsequent period of life. Um, the biblical literacy is pretty apparent. If I, I chose all of these topics that are popping up on the screen right now. I chose them specifically for one reason, actually two reasons. Number one is they've all been in the news in the last 24 months. Every one of these has been part of a public debate in the last 24 months. You can Google it, look it up, and see it. The second thing is the Bible specifically addresses every one of those issues. Now, how many Christians can put a Bible verse to the capital gains tax? Jesus did. Jesus also put a Bible verse minimum wage, Matthew 20, verse 15. There's also Bible verses on capitation taxes, progressive taxes, estate taxes, inheritance taxes, uh, due process rights. Even Justice Breyer said we all know that the due process rights and the Bill of Rights came out of the Bible. Do we really? Well, if you go to the federal law book, there's 20 pages on how that John 8:10 and Proverbs 18:17, all these other things, gave us the right to confront our accuser, gave us the right to compel witnesses on our behalf, etc. It's all from the Bible. Most even Christians today cannot put a single Bible verse. And these are public issues. The Bible addresses everything that's out there, but the biblical literacy now is down. That's why I'm challenging you again. Where we started, start reading the Bible every day. And start memorizing something every day because you're going to find stuff you didn't even know was in there. We think we know what's in the book. We don't. Uh, continue. Benjamin Rush said that the Bible contains more knowledge necessary to man in his present state than any other book in the world. Let me give you some historical examples. Uh, let me take you just for a moment to this guy, Matthew Murray. He's not a guy we study in school anymore. We used to. He's a really famous guy. He's in the early 1800s. Matthew Murray was a guy who loved the sea. He went to, to sea at an early age. He was a cabin boy, um, but he loved the sea, and he stayed at it, and so he became a sailor. Then he became an officer. Then he became a captain. Then he had his own fleet of ships. He just loved the sea. That was his, his man, that was his life, was the sea. He was ashore one day and had a stagecoach accident back in the early 1800s, and it crushed his leg, and his leg never grew back right, and so he never got back to sea, but he always loved it, so he kept studying the sea. And he is the guy that we know, we call him today the father of oceanography. He's the guy who discovered that there are jet streams in the ocean. Now, I want you to think of the early 1800s. What kind of technology did you have? And yet he plotted out jet streams. He said, you know, if you'll take your ship over here to go to England, if you'll move it over about a half a mile, you'll get there about two weeks earlier. What? How'd you figure that out? And as a matter of fact, at the time he discovered that, if you went from Boston to San Francisco, you had to go all the way around South America to come back up. It took you six months to get there. After he came out with these charts that showed where the jet streams in the ocean were, it took you three months to get from Boston to San Francisco, cut it in time, which means if you're in shipping, you can get twice as many runs in there, which is a lot more economics, a lot more prosperity. American lifestyle came up because we could start doing transportation so much cheaper. And 1800s, and by the way, if you don't know there's jet streams in the ocean, watch Finding Nemo. That'll, that'll get you educated really good. So here he is in the early 1800s doing this. How? He, re he reports that he was homesick one day. 
And he was homesick in bed, and he asked his family, he said, would you read the Bible out loud to me? And he said, and they started reading the Bible out loud. And they started reading particularly out of Psalm 8. Psalm 8, this is part of the passage, it says, Lord, thou madest man to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, and the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes through the paths of the sea. Whoa, read that again. See, what got him was paths of the sea. I've been on the sea my whole life. I've never seen a pathway in the sea. Read that again. And they kept reading. They said, we read it to you. Yeah, read it again. And so this came alive to him off the page. He said, and this is what he wrote. He said, if God said there are paths in the sea, there are paths in the sea, and I'm going to find them. And so that was his commitment. That's what he did. He found the pathways in the sea. That was not the only Bible verse that shifted science. Uh, another one that he specifically pointed to was out of, first, uh, was out of Ecclesiastes 1.6. Ecclesiastes 1.6, it says, The wind goes toward the south and turns around toward the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. Wait a minute, the wind's got a circuit? I thought the wind blew wherever it would. Wait a minute, the circuit? He found out that in one hemisphere it goes one direction, the other hemisphere it goes the other direction. And again, he plots out the jet streams in the air. And he, for the first time ever, weather prediction starts becoming possible. He is called the father of naval meteorology. He said, guys, see those clouds? Do not set sail this week. You wait till next week, and you'll have a safe voyage. If you do it now, he starts predicting the weather. Yeah, he starts predicting the weather back then. An interesting thing about Matthew Mari, let me reset that. I'll be right back. There we go. Beat me to it. These, this is some of the statues of Matthew Mari. He's such a great scientist, great inventor. Now, he's completely unknown to this generation. Matter of fact, this is one of the statues that got torn down with all the statues because nobody knows who he is. But he has several statues. And it's interesting that you look at the statues of Matthew Mari, and right beside his feet at every statue, it has the Bible. Why? Because this is where he got his ideas. One of the greatest scientists we have, the father of oceanography, the father of meteorology, but Benjamin Rush said the Bible is applicable to every aspect of life, including science. So our life has been better because of what we found with the Bible and science. Another example, John Adams. John Adams um, talked about how that what made our government so different from others was the constitutional separation of powers. Now, Three branches, that's pretty cool. That's Isaiah 33, 22, but a lot of countries have three branches. Great Britain had three branches. They didn't have separation of powers. Therefore, the king ran the parliament, the king ran the judges, the king ran everything. John Adams said, we found separation of powers, and John Adams has four letters where he said, we found it in Jeremiah 17, 9. He said, this is where we discovered separation of powers. And by the way, in addition to Jeremiah 17, 9, oops, in addition to um, to John Adams saying that, Alexander Hamilton also quotes Jeremiah 17.9, George Washington quotes Jeremiah 17.9, and James Madison quotes Jeremiah 17.9 as the reason we have checks and balances. That probably more than any other reason is why we've lasted 234 years under the same piece of paper. Because three branches, that's good, but that's not what did it. What did it was checks and balances, separation powers. So John Adams points to that. That's a specific Bible verse that gave a specific aspect of our constitutional government nobody ever thinks about. You also go to folks like James Kent. James Kent's called the father of American jurisprudence. He's one of the two guys who helped found the American judicial system. James Kent talked about how that America had what were called circuit court judges. Now, we still have circuit court judges today, but back then it meant that the, the judge got on a horse and rode the circuit from place to place and held court different places. 
Um, today you have the First Circuit, the Second Circuit, Third Circuit, Fourth Circuit. There's still circuits, and every Supreme Court justice is over a circuit. But back in their day, they rode the circuit. They got on their horse, and they rode the circuit. Um, state courts today, we have what we call circuit courts. We have appeals courts. But circuit courts is common in our judicial system. Where did we get that? According to the father of American jurisprudence, he said, well, we got that out of 1 Samuel 7, verses 15 and 16, because the Bible says that Samuel judged Israel and rode the circuit from Gilgal to Mitzvah to whatever. It said, hey, look, that's what the Bible judges did. They got on their horse or donkey, and they rode the circuit and went place to place. Didn't make everybody come to Washington, D.C. So that's where we got the concept of circuit courts, and that's how we had circuit courts. That's a really unusual feature. came out of the Bible. In the same way, Ben Franklin is responsible for the first health care system in America. He started the first hospital in America. When he started that hospital, Pennsylvania Hospital, 1751, he, he drew the logo for the hospital. And on the logo, the logo was Luke 1035. He said, this is why we have the first hospital in America. This is where it came from, was Luke 1035. Uh, you also have Alexander Hamilton. He said um, that what we have in Exodus 3118 is the reason we have a written constitution. And James Madison quoted the same verse. And by the way, there's a whole lot of countries that still don't have written constitution. Great Britain does not have a written constitution to this day. Israel does not have a written constitution. We have a written constitution. Why? They quoted Bible verses on why that occurred. So there are so many other examples of how practical the Bible is. And we've allowed people to tell us the Bible is a spiritual book. And if you need spiritual help, go to the Bible. No, no. If you need math help, go to the Bible. If you need science help, go to the Bible. If you need business help, go to the Bible. If you need help on anything, go to the Bible. We've, there's a, a great passage in Romans 12, 1 and 2 in the King James. It says, be not conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In Romans uh, 12, 2, in the Phillips translation, I love this. It says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. And what we've let us, we've let people who don't like the Bible tell us where we can apply the Bible and how we can use it and what it applies to. The Bible is so much bigger than anything we've ever imagined. And that's what we see from history. So let me keep going with this. President Roosevelt summed it up this way. He said, in the formative days of the Republic, the directing influence the Bible exercised from the fathers of the nation is conspicuously evident. He said, we cannot read the history of our rise and development as a nation without reckoning with the place the Bible has occupied in shaping the advances of the Republic. So again, these are presidents telling us how important the Bible is. This is what every generation knew before this generation. This is like new stuff to us. We're going, wow, they said that? Yeah, that was, that was old stuff back then. So in looking at, at where we are, what we have currently today is 9% of Christians read the Bible on a daily basis. It's hard to know how the Bible applies to science or math or economics or business or mechanics or anything else if you don't read it. And on top of that, only one out of 16 can actually put a Bible verse to a specific thing that's in the news. So we don't have the biblical application that we've had in previous generations. So what do we do with that? Well, part of that goes back in a minute here. It'll come back up. We'll see. Part of that goes back to how we even look at the Bible and what we do with the Bible. Um, because we have allowed the Bible to be put into a fairly irrelevant book in a lot of ways because we don't see our leaders using it the way we used to do it in, in all the public policies we had. I'm going to try it again. See if I can wake it up. Here it comes. See, all i got to do is threaten it. All i got to do is walk back there. If it sees me coming, it just pops on. It's real easy. So Gallup last week came out with this poll, and it's significant because it says fewer in the U.S. now see the 
Little Bible's liberal word, little word of God. Again, 72% of Americans say they're Christians. What we found was, and you can't read that, so I'll put it up in bigger text. It says a record low, 20% of Americans now say the Bible is the literal word of God. What we have is a new high of 29% say the Bible is a collection of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts according to a man. We now have more professing Christians who believe the Bible is fables and literature and whatever than those who believe it's the actual Word of God. So it's not directing lives the way that it needs to, and that's got to be, all right, I'm going to go threaten it again. I'm going to walk back there, and it'll turn on again. See if we can get it. Get a hammer. I need a bigger hammer. That's right. Every, see, I just started walking back here. So I'm going to go back to John Quincy Adams. I started with him. John Quincy Adams, um, you may not know this about John Quincy Adams. Pres President of the United States, he writes a book for 10-year-old Americans. Don't do it. Did it. He writes a book for 10-year-old Americans. Let, let me just disconnect it because it's acting like it's got a short there. So let me just disconnect it. We'll try one more time. I've broken the connection. Let's see. Not making it through. What do you think? No, it's, it's all here. It's in the signal going from top to bottom. Because that, we pull that out. Yeah, pull it out one more time. See, it doesn't change the reset on the screen. Break out, break back in, go down here. All right, that time it found it. Let's see if it keeps finding it. Okay. Looks like it. John Quincy Adams, President of the United States, he wrote a book for 10-year-old Americans showing 10-year-old Americans how to read through the Bible from cover to cover once every year. Now, can you imagine what happened if any president today wrote a book showing American young people how to read the Bible cover to cover once a year. This is what he told them. He says, no book in the world deserves to be so unceasingly studied and so profoundly meditated on as the Bible. He says, I have myself for many years made it a practice to read through the Bible once every year. That was early American practice. Founding Fathers, Franklin, everybody. Bible cover to cover once a year. That's why they memorized and knew what they knew. That's how come it flowed out of their mouth because they were in it that often. Let me challenge you, if you have not made it a practice to read through the Bible cover to cover once a year, start that practice right now. Just make a commitment that 12 months from now, I will have walked into church Wednesday night and I will have finished the Bible from cover to cover. If you haven't done that, start that. That is, a, that is what built America. That's what we, and again, he's telling this to 10 year olds. President of the United States, guys, I read the Bible cover to cover once a year. And he did a whole lot more than that, by the way. We have his diaries. He, he says, I read at least four chapters, four to five chapters a day, and I spend an hour in the Bible every day. You don't have to do that if you want to read the Bible once a year. It takes you 3.2 chapters a day. It takes you 12 to 15 minutes to read the Bible cover to cover once a year if you do that. And today we have so many apps. You know, while I was getting ready this morning, just brushing my teeth, combing my hair, let the Bible play. I'm listening to the Bible. I can get through the Bible 12 to 15 minutes a day 
in a course of a year, but just one of the Bible apps. It's not a hard thing to do. We've got the time to do it. But he's telling 10-year-olds, I spend an hour a day in the Bible, and I, I go four to five chapters every day. He just loved being in it. That's where he got, and he says, he said, I, he had concordances, but he said, I love every year when I go through the Bible, I choose a topic I've never thought of before. He said, one year I went through the Bible looking to see what it said about banking and finances. I looked for every verse I could find on banking and finances. One year it was education. One year, he just would choose a topic and see, he'd read the Bible, you're looking especially for that topic. So he continues, he tells these 10-year-olds, he says, I have always endeavored to read it with the same spirit which I now recommend to you, which is Read it with the intention and desire that may contribute to my advance in wisdom and virtue. When I read the Bible, it's not a devotional book. I'm not looking to get blessed. I want something that will challenge my thinking, my wisdom. I want something that will challenge my behavior, my virtue. I'm always looking for application. And he said, I'm telling you, when you read the Bible, you look for practical application all the time. And don't let people tell you, oh, it's a spiritual book. It, it doesn't deal with business or economics or banking or athletics. It does. And so that's what he's teaching them is always look for application. You'll find application all the ways you go through the Bible. Now, I want to take you to what was common in America in previous years. All public institutions will have records. I just chose one from New Jersey, 1816. This is the annual public school report. Just like there's an annual education report in Colorado, you can read it. This is the one from New Jersey, 1816. I can show you from all the other states as well. I want, to, I want you to see what was happening in the public schools back in that day. So, public schools, it says, all the scholars of the first and second classes, so like first and second grade, commit to memory portions of the New Testament or Psalms, a lesson of the Catechism, and several hymns, and the text of the preceding Sabbath. So, everybody in first and second grade memorizes portions of the New Testament or Psalms, a lesson of the Catechism, several hymns, and the text of the preceding Sabbath. In other words, whatever Mark preached about on Sunday, we're going to memorize all the Bible verses he mentioned on Sunday. That's going to be part of what we do in the school. This is the lesson. Whatever, whatever verses you heard on Sunday, we're memorizing it in school. Keep going. Now, remember, we're first and second grade here, right? It says, one of the scholars, first and second grade, has committed to memory the book of John and the first 30 Psalms together with the 119th Psalm. Public schools, one of, the, one of the kids has memorized the whole Gospel of John and 30 more Psalms and Psalm 119. Keep going. But the majority have committed memory of the Gospel of John. Nearly every first and second grader, nearly every first and second grader has memorized the Gospel of John. You know, Jeff Foxworth had that, Jeff Foxworth, they had that program a few years ago, Are You Smarter Than Fifth Grader? We need one, Are You Smarter Than a New Jersey Second Grader? I mean... All the second grade kids have memorized the Gospel of John. See, this, this is why Franklin and these other guys, it just it came out when they started speaking. They had memorized so much. And that's why I challenge you, just do a Bible verse a week. That's not much. But it gets you started. It gets you moving in that direction. And this is what our public schools were doing back then. So vaccinations, don't think about COVID. We're tired of COVID for sure. But how does a vaccination work? A vaccination works. What causes a vaccination to work is you get enough of something that it gives you an immunity to it. I'm going to argue that American Christians have had enough Christianity that we're immune to it now. We've had just enough of the Bible. We really don't know it. I don't need to because I know it's in there. And, and it's like we've, we've been vaccinated against Christianity in the Bible, 
we need to be serious like the second graders were. You know, we need to be back to where we were in previous generations where that we apply the Bible to everything that goes on in life. And that's not a function of the government. That's a function of us. That's us just deciding we're going to do this. And again, if you don't read the Bible cover to cover once a year, let me challenge you to do so. That's, that's what will turn America around faster than anything else we do. Because if we have secular thinking Christians, we'll never, never get the nation turned around. You have to go back to things that work, answers that work, and that's going to come out of God's Word, which is what they applied back then, which is why they had so many Bible verses for their policies that they used. So look at this, read the Bible daily, memorize a verse weekly. Now, um, Joshua 1.8 says very simply, God says, constantly think about my word every day and every night, shall be sure to obey it, then you'll be prosperous and successful. Guaranteed prosperity and success is getting in God's word, memorize it, think about it day and night. I argue that that's why America has been so much special than any other nation. The more secular we become, the less special we become. The more secular we become, the more tenuous we become. The more things are looking like they're falling apart. We have not seen the stuff we've seen in the last three years. But that's becoming because we're the most secular nation we've been in our history. We're the most biblically illiterate nation. The other thing I want to share with you tonight is to close this down in the final minutes we've got. This is the chart of what's happened to Christians in America over recent years. Uh, we went from 85% 20 years ago, and just in 2020, we were down to 65%. So we went from 72 down to 65, but we've had a 20% drop in the number of people who profess to be Christians in America in doing polling and saying, why did you quit going to church? Why don't you go to church anymore? Two out of three said because they don't get anything relevant. There's nothing that applies to their life. They get nothing that helps them live throughout the week. And yeah, that gets messy and that gets sticky. And when you start trying to disciple people, that's a messy thing to do. You're going to get people offended. And hopefully every one of you disciples someone else. Jesus told his disciples, go make disciples of all men. That's not the responsibility of the church. That's the responsibility of other Christians. Every one of us should be mentoring someone. And it's interesting right now that in a generation, the uh, Gen Y and Gen Z generations, the two youngest generations, 68% of those young people have grown up in a home without a mother and a father. So they do not know what a stable home is. And they're the first generation in American polling history, 120 years of polling history, they're the first generation that is actually asking to be mentored by someone older than them. My hair, we grew up, we had what we call the generation gap. No old person is going to tell me what to do. It's not that way today. Today, if you can create a genuine relationship with someone, they want to be discipled. We have a discipleship hunger that we've never seen in polling before. People want to be mentored. They want to be helped. They want to see solutions. But that means you've got to know them first. Every one of us needs to pick on someone one at a time. You know, we've been trying to evangelize the world since Jesus left here. And here we are with 7.9 billion people in the world, and now 32% of those people are Christians. 32% of the world today is Christians. That's biggest religion by far, 21% Muslim, 14% Hindu, 6% Buddhist. So Christians, 2,000 years, we're now number one on the heap. Let me suggest something to you. If every Christian, and we've spent... We've spent immense amounts of money to evangelize the world. 85% of all the money that comes to evangelize the world comes out of America. If America goes under, that's going to be hard on the world, Christian-wise. But nonetheless, if every single Christian just made it your goal in this next year, I'm going to win one person to Christ and disciple one person. I don't care, I don't care what happens to the rest of the world. I'm going to find one. If everybody did one, 
in one year, 32% would become 64%. If we did it two years in a row, 100% of the world would be Christian in only two years. We've been trying 2,000 years, and we're at 32%. If we just simply discipled other people around us one-on-one and just said, my only objective this year is find one person, get that person to Christ, get them thinking biblically, man, we'll turn this nation around in two or three or four years. And you don't have to wait for you know some big manifestation of miraculous angels flying by and none of that this is something we can do so i challenge you to do that so leaving the church because of this this is why you're hearing people say we got to have a revival we need a revival we're praying for revival i want to kind of close by shaking you maybe a little bit on what a revival looks like historically we do a lot of work on revivals we have a lot of the revival sermons of revivalists like george whitfield and wesley and and cooper and mayhew and chauncey and all these guys and you look at what's happening with where we are, it's the major problem we have right now is we have a national obsession. Every one of us gets our national news somewhere. We all, I don't care if you're on the left, it's going to be, I don't know, Fox. A lot of people don't watch Fox anymore, but Fox or Epic Times or Blaze or it's going to be Newsmax or Victory News. If you're, that's if you're on the right. If you're on the left, it's going to be MSNBC or something like that. Nonetheless, you're going to have a lot of national news. And as a result... I can ask most folks, who's the president of the United States? And they can tell me. If I say, who's the president of your local school board? They can't tell me. If I say, name three federal lawmakers, you can tell me. If I say, name three local policymakers on the city council, they can't tell me. I can go through the Supreme Court. We know a lot. We don't know who the county judge is. We don't know who the sitting municipal judge is. We know a whole lot more about what's going on nationally than we do locally. And you know what? We can't change much of what's going on nationally. We can sure change what's going on locally. And this is the problem we have. We're thinking at a national level because that's where we get news. Uh, all of these levels here, I'm involved in all of them, and I can't make any changes there. You know, we go to the Supreme Court. We win cases not because we made great arguments, but because people got appointed to the court that were good people that actually had a brain. And once you get people with a brain, you can make good arguments and win things. So it's not so much what we do. I can't change there. But what happens is we see what goes on nationally. We get angry, get paralyzed, we get frustrated. We go through all the emotions. We're just ready to throw the TV, break it up. We're ready to find a, a, a island somewhere and just get away from everything. It's because we're looking at stuff we can't change. What we should be doing is looking at the local level. Let me give you examples. The American War for Independence, we beat the British. We became an independent nation. We had no army. We had no navy. We had nothing. How did it happen? If you take the first four battles of the American War for Independence, top right going around, top right is Lexington, top left is Concord, bottom left is Road to Boston, bottom right is Bunker Hill. At no point did any of those first four battles contact George and say, George, you're the national commander-in-chief. You got the army. We are really outnumbered here. We need help, and we need help now. Nobody contacted George. How come? Every one of those groups said, it's our community. We'll take care of our community. George, you got big stuff to do. You, you go take care of the big stuff. We'll take care of our community. And so what happens is on April the 19th, that first morning, uh, 700 British came to town. They were on their way to Concord. And they, our history books say 70 courageous Americans went out to confront the 700 British. That is not true. What happened was the Reverend Jonas Clark took his church out to confront the British, and he had 70 men in his church. And so they went out and told the British, look, we know what you're doing. You're coming to take stuff out of our house, our storehouse. 
we have a British Bill of Rights, a man's home is his castle. You can't do this. This violates the Bill of Rights, and we're not going to let you. But Pastor Clark has said, hey, if it ever comes to self-defense, you can't start anything. God will never bless an offensive war. If they fire at you, you can return fire. That's Exodus 22, twice in Nehemiah. That's once over in Luke. But you can't start anything. That's why we lost that morning in a big way. Uh, and it wouldn't have mattered if we'd had SEAL Team 6 on our side that morning. We still would have lost because everybody had a single-shot musket. When you have 700 single-shot muskets firing at 70 single-shot muskets, and when they get the first shot, it's not going to end up good. That's why 18 Americans hit the ground that morning. British marched on through Lexington. They went to Concord, which is where they were headed. We're told in our history books that between three and 400 courageous Americans went out to meet the British, and that is not what happened. Again, Reverend Reverend Joseph Emerson brought his church out to meet the British. He had three to 400 in his church. And he said, guys, we're not letting you cross the bridge. We know what you're trying to do. This is illegal. You will not do it. And by the way, did we hear that you fired at our brethren over at Lexington? Have you guys started a war? Is that what this is? Yeah, all right, well, we're on. That's where the first British hit the ground. The British commander that morning said, this is not going the right direction. I've had 70 to face. I now have 400 to face. I've only got 700. If we don't get reinforcements and get them quick, we're going to be outnumbered in a hurry. So he turned around. That's the third battle is the road to Boston. It's a 19-mile running battle where the, the British are trying to get back, but they're burning all the houses as they go. They're burning all the crops. They're attacking the Americans. And the Americans said, you're not going to do that. So it ended up that 4,500 Americans lined the road on both sides shooting at the British as they went by. Where'd they come from? Reverend Benjamin Balch brought his church. Reverend Payson Phillips brought his church. That you're not going to do this. This is, this is just, not, we've got a constitution. We've got a Bill of Rights. You're not going to do this. And it was at that time the constitution, what they called the Bill of Rights. So you get to the fourth battle, and that battle is the battle of Bunker Hill. Reverend Joseph Willard said, I got two companies here in the church. Let's go get with all the other churches and defend Boston. That's what happened in those battles. That's what happened throughout the American War for Independence. There's only just a handful of battles that Washington was engaged with. But generally, most of what happened was it was all local stuff. They had local, local involvement. There's, 100, there's about 132 battles in the American War for Independence. I want to show you some of the battles. See if you've heard of any of these battles. Probably you haven't. Lindley's Mill, Francisco's Fight, Battle of Black Sox, Clocks Field, Battle of Musgrove Hill, Battle of Fisham Ford, Battle of Shallow Ford, Battle of Picria, Battle of Hanging Rock, about 120 battles. Most battles in the American War for Independence were local. We won so many local battles, we won the national battle. We think it was the national commander-in-chief that saved us. No. George was involved in Brandywine and Monmouth and Yorktown, and even then all the local folks showed up to help him do what had to be done. So you get the local focus back and start thinking about the local focus, and that's where you start making change. Now, let me apply that to revival, because not only does that work for your communities, it works for, for how to have revivals. Uh, with revivals, if you think about revivals, there are no national revivals. And we say, well, wait a minute, George Whitfield, the Great Awakening, that, that's, that's a, a, a national revival. Uh, let me take you to Whitfield and the national revivals. So they occur locally. So Whitfield and the Great Awakening, we think it's a national revival. By the way, he preached 34 years. He preached 18,000 sermons. And grab this, 80% of all Americans physically heard George Whitfield preach a sermon. 80% of Americans heard him preach a sermon. How did that happen? George Whitfield was a chaplain in Georgia. 
He got on his horse in Georgia. He had a portable pulpit. He folded it up. He tied it on the horse behind him. You can see it at a museum. You, Whitfield got on that horse in Georgia, and he rode to Maine. Now, Maine was part of Massachusetts back then. Maine didn't become a state till 1820. So Whitfield goes from as far south as to as far north as he can go, and he stopped in every town and preached as he went through every town. When he got to Maine, he turned around and rode back to Georgia, but he took a different route and stopped in different towns on the way back. When he got to Georgia, he turned around and went back to Maine, but he took a different route, stopped in different... The reason 80% of Americans physically heard him preach a sermon was he preached sermons in 80% of the towns in America. He went to that many towns. Local revivals broke out everywhere, and then the local churches kept them going. And there were so many local revivals going, it looked like a national revival. It wasn't. It was local revivals. That's why you have the Reverend... Uh, you have the Reverend Samuel Davies. Once the revival broke out in, in Western Virginia, Samuel Davies, Reverend Davies, kept it going for 18 more years in Virginia, kept that local revival going. Uh, you have Reverend Samuel Cooper. Once it broke out in Boston, he kept it going another 10 years. Uh, you have Reverend Gilbert Tennant. Once it broke out in Philadelphia, he kept it going for a dozen years. The revivals kept going because they were local. And that's the focus. You get a local focus. I can handle the local. I can't do all the stuff that's going on in D.C. I can't control the Department of Justice. I can't control what's going on with the, the DOJ or the FBI or anybody. I can handle what's going right here. And so when cities get that focus, it starts making a difference. Let me show you some of the results we're seeing as a result of, uh, of this. Uh, get past these. Um, right now, the average voter turnout in a city election is 6% nationally. That's 6% of registered voters. 65.3% of voters are registered. That's 6% of 65.3, which means 4% of adults vote in city elections. It takes half of that to win, which is 2%. Let me give you one example. If you go to the city of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti is the mayor of Los Angeles, uh, really hates the church, really tried to shut them down. They were not essential. Los Angeles is so big that the city of Los Angeles has a population greater than 23 separate states. Eric Garcetti, who runs Los Angeles, brags about the fact that he was elected the mayor of Los Angeles with 2.9% of the vote. What? I know enough churches in Los Angeles that they could throw him out in a heartbeat if they would. But, oh, that's too big. We, we can't. No, stop thinking big. Stop looking at D.C. Start looking at your city. And there's so many mega churches in D.C., I mean, in, in L.A., not counting the small churches. Then let me take you to Houston. Houston is the fourth largest city in the nation. Um, in Houston, the population of Houston is larger than 20 separate states. Houston elected Anise Parker for their mayor. Anise Parker gets elected mayor. She passed what was called, and she was elected with 4.9% of the registered vote, which is 3.3% of the actual adult vote. She passed what was called HERO. That stands for Houston Equal Rights Ordinance. Those equal rights ordinances have been passed in the largest 200 cities in America, including Denver and elsewhere. And what she said was, anybody who says marriage is between a man and a woman, or there's only two genders, that is a hate crime, and I will have you for that. She was the first open lesbian woman elected in Houston's history. She immediately went after five pastors that were called the Houston Five. She said, I know five pastors right off the top that said marriage is between a man and a woman, and I've got them. She subpoenaed 17 different forms of communication. She said, I want to see all your text messages, all your voice messages. I want to see all your incoming, um, uh, incoming emails, outgoing emails. I want to see all the notes you have on all your 17 different forms. And she says, no, if I find that you've said marriage between a man and a woman, I've got you and you're nailed. It is a crime. 
At that point in time, we said, mm, don't think that's why the city elected her. I think they wanted crime stopped and bridges fixed and whatever. So we got 4,500 churches organized in Houston and said, let's have a referendum on this. There's tens of thousands of churches in Houston. We got 4,500 organized and got a referendum on it. And the day before the referendum, the Washington, the, excuse me, the Houston Chronicle ran a poll and said, we're going to lose. The city is firmly behind Denise Parker. They think what she did is the right thing. They think that we're a bunch of homophobes and we're going to get crushed. And so the polling showed that we're going to lose 60-40. The next day we had the election. The next day on the election, we had a 14% voter turnout, and she lost by 22 points. It was 61-39. Now, there's two points, two points worth noting here. Number one is the polling missed it by 42 points. They said she's going to win by 20. She lost by 22. The next thing I'd point out is we had a 14% turnout in that special election. That's pathetic. Yeah, but that's five times larger than what the turnout was that elected her mayor, 3.3%. 3 if you just get Christian voter turnout up that much, it becomes a disproportional landslide. See, and it didn't take them. We did it in San Antonio. They had the same kind of thing. It was a Class C misdemeanor in San Antonio to say marriage between a man and a woman, $500 a day fine. You can never hold office in the city, and you can never do business with the city. We got 2,100 churches involved. Smashed it. See, it's just getting people involved in their own communities, people seeing the news. So... Oops, we'll get back to it in a minute. Um, and one more, a couple more I'll give you real quickly, and we'll close down for the night. Fort Worth, Texas is the 13th largest city in the nation. That's right outside our ranch. Our ranch is, is right outside Fort Worth. And Fort Worth, six years ago, the Fort Worth Independent School District came forward and said, you know, we've been thinking about this, and we're not going to do genders anymore in our school. We're going to let kids choose whatever bathroom they want, whatever locker room they want, whatever shower room they want. That it's up to them. We're not going to do genders anymore. At that point in time, President Obama is still president, and Arne Duncan, the, the chairman, the secretary of education, picked it up and said, that's a brilliant idea. I should have thought of that. New federal rule. If your public school gets federal dollars, you will not do genders. You're not, and that's 97% of public schools. So suddenly you have this new rule. Now, this was disturbing to me for several reasons, not the least of which is the, the nickname of Fort Worth, Texas. We call it Cowtown, USA. That's the name of it. Twice a day, we shut down North Main Street, and we have a cattle drive of Longhorns up and down North Main Street. This is who we are as a people. You may not be cowboys. You may not like cowboys. That's fine. I can put any of you on my ranch and put you behind any herd of cattle, and you can tell me the gender of all the... the <laughs> you, you can tell me who's cows, what's bulls. You can tell me what's steers. It doesn't take a degree to know gender. It, and so Fort Worth comes up with this. So I looked at Fort Worth. There's 918,000 voters in Fort Worth. And I looked, here we go. Let me get past here. So uh, this, is our, this is our Longhorn herd that we drive up and down North Main Street twice a day. And so Fort Worth has 918,000. The president of the school board who came up with this policy was elected with less than 1,200 votes. It is 1,182 votes. Uh, and I started looking in the district where he ran, and I found quickly dozens of evangelical churches that could have taken them out. I found one church by itself, one church with 3,000 registered voters in that one church. That one church could have kept him from being on the school board. Grab this. That would have saved the entire nation from six and a half years of gender identity. That national problem started as a local problem that was not taken care of at the local level. And so that's what we have to focus on is what's around. We can't take care of anybody else's stuff. We can take care of what's around us. Two more real quick. Uh, Bentonville, Arkansas is the hometown of Walmart. 
Uh, there was a Christian lady in Bentonville says, you're not doing this in my town. She ran for school board. She got elected in Bentonville in a town of 40,000. There were a total of 35 votes cast in the school board election. She won the majority of 35. That means a Sunday school class could have elected her to school board. It's simple. One more example, Riceville, Iowa. In Riceville, Iowa, there was a farmer in northern Iowa who said, you're not doing this in our schools. And so he ran for school board, but it turned out on election day, he got busy on the farm and did not go vote on election day. And don't think he lost but one vote because that wasn't the story. The story was not a single person voted in the school board election. If he had voted for himself, he would be sitting on the school board just by voting for himself. See, we get focused on national stuff, and great. Glad Lauren's there. Glad she's fighting it. We can take care of what's here. We can take care of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. We take care of what's around us. So those are the examples of local focus. Benjamin Rush, I started with him. I'll end with him. Benjamin Rush, as I told you, is called the father of public schools under the Constitution. Um, it's because of the peace he did in 1791. But interestingly, he, and I told you what he said about the Bible in schools. Here's what he said about public schools. He said the purpose of public schools in America are threefold. Number one, the number one purpose of public schools is to teach students to love and serve God. That's what he said, public schools. He said the number two purpose of public schools is to teach students to love and serve their country. And the number three purpose of public schools is to teach students to love and serve their family. Now, if you look at that, every Christian I know said, no, 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 no. Family is super important. It should be God. It should be family. And it should be country. And Benjamin said, no, you're wrong. It should be God. It should be country. And it should be family. Because he pointed out, if you ever lose control of your country, your country will become the great enemy of your family. And we've been so busy preserving our families, we've lost the country, and now we're seeing the institutions overwhelming us. That's why in the last two years we have seen uh, things I've never seen before. We're, we're, we're seeing victories in elections because school boards. I talked to a, a young pastor this last week. He's 32 years old. He has a church in Fort Worth, Texas. They said, we've got to take care of Fort Worth. Just a month ago, there were 21 school board seats open in Fort Worth. His church got involved, and they won 20 of the 21 school board seats out of one church. In Dallas, Texas, 51 churches got together in Dallas, Texas. Dallas is no small city. In Dallas, Texas, and they won 15 out of 15 school boards in Dallas. They recruited 15 candidates. The churches got together and said, you know, we all, like, we all agree on these. They've got the right values. Every one of them won by 60-40 margin. Most of them won by 70-30 margins. We took the school board in Houston, 2.3 million people in Houston. We just got a few dozen churches involved in Houston. We took the school board in Boise. We took the school board in Denver. We took four school boards in Colorado Springs. We took the school all over the country. This is going, you're not seeing it on the national news. We'll win at the local level, and we'll win so many local battles like the American War for Independence. We'll win the nation. Focus on the local stuff. I went longer than I planned to. Sorry, guys. I went over. Pastor Mark, thank you guys for having me, brother. Thank you. Woo!